Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6 as we continue our study in this important book. Page 926, if you're using our Bibles here. One of the sobering realities of being a Christian is that we still have the sinful nature. And so our first impulse, our first reaction to situations is often very much like an unbeliever. If someone cuts you off on the freeway, your first response is not, well, bless his heart, he must be in a hurry, I'll pray for him. Um, In fact, you might blurt out some vocabulary you thought you retired years ago when those situations arise. So Paul in the first century here is writing to the Corinthian church and is really blunt about sin problems in the church that still plague them. Sin in the life of Christians continues. So we would like to think that we're on this like consistent upward spiritual trajectory. You know, a little ups and downs, but we're going that way, right? And in reality, stuff happens and we find ourselves reverting to the flesh. The guy cuts in front of us, our spouse does that thing again, someone we thought who was our friend at church, and on and on it goes. Paul seemed to have known there were some specific problems because starting in chapter 5, our study last week, we saw he, he tackled a church discipline issue with a serious issue of immorality and In this uh, first part of this chapter, he talks about unresolved conflicts between Christians. And he seems to have some specific situations in mind. In fact, some of them have escalated to the point where one person in church took the other person in church to court. And Paul says that shouldn't be. Verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? That's got some fascinating things that we'll have to look at. But uh, the bottom line is in the first line, They had a conflict and they went to court when they should have gone to someone in their life who's godly and spiritual within the church family. So going to court is an obvious and external thing, and it could be that most of us sitting here today are going, I haven't done that, I I, I am not going to do that. But as always, when when Paul addresses something serious, like last week, this this terrible case of immorality, it kind of prompts our heart about our own impurity, uh, sexually, our thoughts, or whatever. Likewise, when he talks about this conflict, certainly Paul is thinking that we should be thinking inside of ourselves, what causes these conflicts? What What is the greed issue? What is the anger issue? What is the bitterness that's going on sometimes between Christians that it would escalate to the point of taking someone to court? So I think those are the things that the Spirit of God will speak to us about today. Verse, first verse talks about uh, 
Paul's surprise. It's like, seriously? He says, how dare you? That's a word for courage, literally, that sometimes is used positively, but in the New Testament almost always is used negatively. Kind of like, how dare you do something so foolish, so risky? Uh, dare like a couple of young boys daring each other to do something dangerous. Are you so foolish that as Christians you would bring your disputes to non-Christian judges? Well, if not that, then who? He is very direct right up front. The first verse, his point is, instead of before the saints, that's what you should have done. We have to wonder what the situation was. My guess is that at least one or more of these situations were financial dealings. Uh, because at the end of the passage, verse 7 and 8, use a term that's about uh, being financially defrauded by deceit. Cheated. Money will do it. Interestingly, he, he calls the, uh, the church saints. He could have said believers. But he chooses, I think, this term saints deliberately because he wants to alert them to the fact, do you realize who you are? Going back to the second verse of the entire letter, we are called to be saints or called to be holy. Do you realize your status in heaven is already cleared? You're declared righteous before God. That's what, that's what holiness involves ultimately. So we need to be living here like we already are in our status in heaven. You're called to be holy. And when we think about holiness, we have to always remember that it's not just I need to sin less, but rather that I am dedicated to God who is holy. So the reason we need to deal with sin in our unholiness is so that we can be set apart. That's what the word means more dedicated to serve God. So he's calling on them to be different than the world when in fact they have been doing exactly what the world's been doing. And so this part of chapter 6 says, don't settle your differences like the world does. Next week, the last part of the chapter will say, don't view sexuality like the word world does. We are different. So as we think about our con different conflicts that he could have in mind or we could apply this, we do have to have some discretion on what kind of issues is he talking about and what kind of issues is he not talking about. First of all, Paul is not saying that, that uh, secular courts are illegitimate or that government is, is not to be honored. Like, just ignore that. We do it all in-house. Not saying that at all. Paul wrote to the Corinthians very clearly about uh, governments and courts uh, acknowledging that God is the one who has put them in place. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Secular, God's servant. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. He's very, he's very clear, and he's actually, I think, very specific that God has put government in place to deal with criminal issues. Criminal issues are not what this passage is about. I think there's several things this is not about. It's not about criminal situations. Uh, it's not addressing the issue of legitimate uh, freedoms that the government uh, protects for us legally. And he's actually not addressing the issue of Christians in conflict with non-Christians. It just simply is not addressed. Let's look at those. 
If a Christian, criminal cases, it's not about that. If, if a Christian uh, is accused of assault or theft or abuse or murder, those are criminal court issues. And uh, sometimes Christian organizations or churches have wrongly tried to handle criminal issues in-house, generally in an attempt to hide them. You can't hide them. And uh, those are the kind of things that make the news and affect the uh, testimony of Christianity. As pastors, we are mandatory reporters of, of uh, many criminal acts. Secondly, this is also not telling Christians that they can never appeal to secular courts for um, legal protection of legitimate freedoms. And actually, America has great laws for uh, freedom of religion, etc. So, but even, even then, uh, when Paul and Silas were beaten and jailed unjustly in, in Philippi, uh, the next morning, uh, Paul appealed his legitimate claim as a Roman citizen, and suddenly the officials were kind of worried because they had just beaten a Roman citizen illegally. Another case, Paul uh, was being accused by the Jerusalem Jews, and he says, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. And that's what gave him the, the free trip to Rome, where he then spent uh, two and a half years in prison, writing, among other things, four of our New Testament books. And so I'm grateful for Christian legal organizations that are um, making appeals at times to secular courts about legitimate freedoms. However... When you think about that issue, there's a balance because it can be unwise spiritually to always press our rights for ministry freedoms because you can win a legal battle and lose a spiritual one just because you can become known for just pushing your rights, your rights, your rights, and, and you kind of lose the respect of uh, and the testimony with, by irritating authorities uh, with, with pounding your rights. Not criminal, not legal protection. And it doesn't address when believers are in conflict with unbelievers. But, but frankly, the same kind of wisdom needs to, be, needs to be pursued. Because do you think it's actually spiritually wise to, to take your, your next door neighbor, who's an unbeliever, uh, to court small claims court over, you know, where the fence is, something about the tree, going to, going to them about a, a minor damage to your property. Romans 12, 11, just before he got to the government issue, he said, if it's possible, live at peace with all men. I mean, consider, have some wisdom about the spiritual priorities. So if those are not the issues, what is? This is this is two Christians in a dispute over personal matters. Offense. Something said, maybe something that uh, was untrue, slander, maybe uh, some financial dealings. So if, it's your, if your neighbor is a believer uh, who caused property damage or sold you a car, it turns out the transmission is bad, or will you take them to small claims court if someone has said something untrue about you as another, another believer, will you, will you go to court and file a, a, a defamation suit? This seems to say no. Uh, farmers in my home church in Kansas often uh, farm with neighboring lands, shared, shared uh, property lines. Uh, 
And so issues come up. Like, uh, his cattle got out, ate my standing grain. Uh, he sprayed weed killer on his, on his weeds, but it, it was a windy day and it blew over into my, into my crops and killed some crops. Or uh, is, he, is he farming over that invisible property line and taking some of mine, so to speak? Or if I did some work for him, did he pay me what he said? You know, it, there's so many things. And when your lives overlap, and evidently lives overlapped in Corinth, though it was not farming, but... He says, when you do take someone to court from the, from, the, from the family of God in the church, you've already lost spiritually. And you can see why Paul would say he's thinking a whole lot deeper than rights. He's thinking about ongoing relational hurts. Uh, he, he's thinking about the bitterness. He's thinking about the divide. He's thinking about people who know people and they have to take sides. And now, now so the whole the gospel is, is no longer the focus and people are thinking about these other issues and He's thinking about the, the gospel and the heart. These, device, these, these divisive disputes contradict the unity we have in Christ, first of all. Because we both have the Holy Spirit, we both are related to Christ. He says we should be able to, to, to address and resolve these things in the church family. But interestingly, while, while the unity in Christ would be the, the major theological reason we have, we should be able to settle this, that's not the thing that Paul brings up to support his point. He says we're going to be judging the world and angels, so why can't we handle our own stuff? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if we're able to judge, the, if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? And then, don't you know that you are going to judge angels? And we all say, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> what is that about? It reveals that Paul is not focused on this earthly existence. He lives with his eyes to the sky. He thinks about eternity, which is what we should be thinking about. That this life is preparation for eternal life that has been promised by faith in Christ. So as he thinks about that, he says, do you realize what we're going to be doing in our next life? Judging the world and angels, which obviously brings up an obvious question. Let's take a look at a few passages where we are puzzled, maybe, but we are told about judging the world. If we can get the slide advanced to uh, Daniel here. Daniel 7. There we go. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. The holy people will possess the kingdom? The people. A few verses later, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. There's, there's a time when the people will have the kingdom and, and, and the rule. That's Old Testament believers. What about us? 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Hmm. Revelation, to the one who is victorious, spiritually victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, Jesus said. Or jumping clear to the end of the Bible about believers, saints who have died in the seven-year tribulation. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
to reign with Christ for a thousand years. In fact, the reference to a thousand years clarifies something. This is speaking not of heaven, but earth. The thousand years is the millennial age, the final dispensation here on earth. We have been, as believers in the church age, we've been raptured, translated, taken to heaven. We're in our new bodies, right? But on earth, there's a thousand-year period of time, Revelation 20 says. It's a kingdom age. You could say it's the best age on earth. Jesus is going to be ruling specifically and, and personally from Jerusalem. Everybody, everybody will know who he is. And, and somehow, this is saying, that believers from previous ages, under the law, church age, you and me, we're going to be involved with him ruling, reigning, judging, are we on some kind of holy jury as Jesus judges the world? We'd worry a lot less, I think, about evil in our world if we understood the grim future they will have at the hands of Judge Jesus. Two conditions in these verses about us, our, our age, it says that those who endure will reign with him. Not necessarily everybody, but those who endure will reign with him. Those who are victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. It really elevates the concept that we studied in chapter 3 about rewards. Not knowing exactly what they are, but this reminds us of Jesus in Luke 19 when he said uh, the parable about the, the rewards, when he says, you know, I'm going to be leaving and I'm going to like leave stuff with my, with my stewards, and I'm going to come back. And in Luke 19, the parable says, and I'll give him the authority to reign over so and so many cities if he's been faithful while I've been gone. So it, it, this, it, it shows how important it is that we address our selfishness versus our faithfulness and our, our service and to God. It's so much more than just a ticket to heaven. We want, to, we want to be serving. Because in heaven, we do not just sit on our hands. We are going to be busy serving. We're going to be more alive than ever. And, and it's a very important season to prepare for. And Paul says, let me tell you about that. And then judging angels. This is the only passage that I know of that, that he talks about judging angels. And I really believe he's talking about judging the unholy angels, also called demons. But sometimes the Bible refers to demons as Satan's angels because they're the same class of being as all angels, but the ones who were fallen will, will be judged. We have clear passages saying that God will judge them. Maybe somehow we're involved in that as well. So the point is that somehow as believers, if indeed we're serving on some kind of eternal jury with Jesus the judge, then can't we somehow be competent verse 2, to judge trivial cases. I mean, come on. If God, if God thinks that enough of you to involve you in these, these, these uh, final, holy, uh, mighty judgments of the world and angels, then how, why couldn't you, here on earth, having the presence of the Holy Spirit, the unity in Christ, why couldn't you act with grace and truth and wisdom over things of earth? Verse 4 is probably making much the same point. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to translate it from the, the Greek to the English because, basically because Greek language doesn't have punctuation. Uh, a question mark is probably right. In fact, I would 
prefer the way the New American Standard Version says it, which is basically this. Do you appoint as judges those who are of no account in the church? In other words, he's saying, seriously, are you going to make judges of your situation, somebody who has no standing in the church, no understanding of Jesus, no understanding of the Holy Spirit, no spiritual core to the way they are making their discernment. That's who you're going to call in to decide between you? So it leads into the verse 5 then to say, I say this to shame you. Is it possible there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Is that what you're saying? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers? Uh, there's a place for, uh, I guess, legitimate guilt or shame. You can almost hear your parents' voice, shame on you, right? What, what, what are you thinking, Paul says? You are God's holy ones. You are saints. You should be doing things different from the world. He's very much aware that our first impulse, we have the sin nature, we have the flesh, and so, so we're not going to like it when we're charged the wrong price. We're going to, it just kind of rises up inside of us, or, or, or someone said something untrue about us, or we heard that someone said something untrue about us, and, and we just kind of like, this isn't fair, this isn't right. So should we go to court? Criminal acts? Uh, yes. Pretty much everything else? No. Is there no one wise enough to judge a dispute between you? There should, there should be somebody mature enough in the church. You, a, a Christian friend, an elder, someone wise enough that you both trust that would have, would have an awareness of the spiritual issues that are causing this conflict so you can, he, can, he or she can appeal deeper than just did he, he said, she said. But instead, some of them were going to the local magistrate and filing complaints. And Paul is just picturing what that looks like. So you have an unbelieving judge, unbelieving clerk. Townspeople are all, you know, they love to hear controversies, right? I said, don't those two guys go to that church thing, that weird one, you know? They're supposed to follow Jesus, right? Ah, they're just like us. And that seems to be the bottom line. You're called to be holy. You go to court and there's accusations and there's defenses and there's lies told or there's lies exposed and there's certainly emotions, but there's not a lot of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. That's just... And so the Holy Spirit is pretty much ignored in court. Believer with believer. A preacher from a couple generations ago, Harry Ironside, wrote about this passage. It is saying to the world, we Christians are just as greedy and just as quarrelsome, we are just as much concerned about having our way and about self-pleasing as you of the world are. We Christians recognize your judges as having authority over the church of God. Ouch. It's a disgraceful admission. So, if we're supposed to avoid the courts in a dispute with a Christian, what do you do when it's, like, serious? Last week as we studied... Uh, Chapter 5, about church discipline, uh, we turn to Matthew 18. I'm going to ask you to do that again. Keep something in your Bible here. We'll be back for those last two verses. But 
Matthew 18, Jesus addresses the issue of church discipline, but it is more specifically about our subject, which is resolving disputes between Christians that could escalate to a final step of church discipline, but it really gives us insights as to how we should handle things. Uh, page 799 here in our Bibles. So verse 15, Jesus said, if, some, if your brother sins against you, go and show him your fault just between the two of you. Step one, if someone sins against you, approach them personally. If someone sins against you, is your first response to go and tell your best friend how horrible he or she is. That, that's that first fleshly reaction, right? That's adding sin to sin because that's the, that's God, the sin of gossip, the sin of slander. Uh, you're, you're, you're putting them down. Unwholesome words. But instead, you should go and show him, go directly to that person and say, this was serious enough that I, I need to talk to you about this. And so it's interesting that when, when, when two Christians are in conflict, the person who should go or should take the first step is always you. In other words, if you've wronged somebody, shouldn't you go and apologize, right? And if you've been wronged, Jesus says the same thing. It's still your initiative. You need to go to them if they're not coming to you. So the, the responsibility is always on us. Should we do this about every little sin? Oh, please, no. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. I mean, if you, have, if you seriously try to address every sin in every conversation, we, we have no idea how deep the sin layer is. Uh, we'd have no relationships left, no friendships, no marriages. If, you, if, you, if all you did was confront sin, I think you exaggerated there. That's a sin. Let's talk about it. I, I, I think you were kind of boasting there, honey. Let's talk about that sin. <laughs> your motives, I don't think, were completely right. We've got to talk about your, you know, it's ridiculous. Grace for sin against us should be the, should be the norm. Let it go. Let it go. There should be a song about that. But some sins need to be addressed. It's a pattern. And so there's a time when a spouse says to the spouse, we have to talk about this. This is, this is really hurting the health of our marriage. There's a time when, in a church situation where someone has lied about someone and it's going to impact their ability just to, to function with their gifts and they've got to sort this out. And there are times when there are significant financial losses maybe between Christians. So, so then what do you do? Let's say your Christian brother sold you a car. Okay? The next day the transmission goes out. Did he know? Uh, does, he, uh, does he admit it or does, does he say, no, that's your problem, buddy? So should you sue him? 1 Corinthians 6 says, first you go to him and say what you think. And maybe, verse 15 is saying, maybe he will say, 
you know, I should have told you about a vibration. I didn't know what it was. I am really sorry. I, I can, I'll take it back. I'll give your money back. Or you come to whatever agreement. And he says, he's, he's apologizing and you forgive him. Done deal. That's how things should be settled. But what if he lies about it and says, no, it's your problem, buddy. And in fact, you know that some people have come along and said, you know what, he actually told me, got rid of that lemon before the transmission went out. So now what? If he refuses to hear you, take two or three witnesses, verse 16. If you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you go with another person or two and say, no, actually, this is, this is what happened. But what if he still denies it? If he refuses, verse 17, to, to listen to them, the witnesses, tell it to the church. Step three, tell it to the church. Uh, sometimes we hasten on to the next line that says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's the step of church discipline. I wonder, though, the, if Jesus isn't indeed making any distinction between steps three and four when it comes to personal conflict, at least, where taking it to the church might be that you take it to, like 1 Corinthians 6, some godly leader, somebody to say, can we somehow resolve this so it stays private? Giving the, the, the guy an opportunity once more to repent that, okay, I knew about the transmission or whatever. Um, if there's still no admission of guilt, then you remove him from the fellowship because this is a, this is, this is a lie and it's, it's, it's serious enough. I mean, the, 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 the car was, there isn't $4,000 left for this guy to, to fix the transmission of this bad car now, and, and he needed to get to work. He needs it to get his kids to school, and so the church steps in. So back to 1 Corinthians 6, the basic instructions of Paul. And if you want, if you're more, interested in more information on church discipline, if you weren't here last week, feel free to go back and look at that. But uh, Jesus says sometimes these personal things become a matter of the church. Paul has a few more things to say in verses 7 and 8, which is like saying, okay, I know what's happening, you know what you should do, but do you understand the spiritual issues that underlie all of this? Verse 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated or defrauded? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. These are principles for that church, our church, all churches. But it seems that verse 7 is, is targeted, aimed more at the plaintiff, in this case, the one making the accusations. And verse 8 is... Uh, aimed more at the person who is, uh, will presume guilty, but is being accused. So, verse 7, you're, you've already lost just by taking your brother to court. You, you think that winning the case is the goal. So you, so you get your shekels back, you get 
uh, shekels for the, the injury, the emotional hurt, the way you feel or whatever, one call, that's all, and then it will be, life will be fair and you'll be happy. He says, no, you really haven't. You won't be because um, you've lost spiritually by taking your brother to court. How's that? Well, by taking him to court, you realize you, you, you're forcing yourself to focus on rights, which by nature fans the flames of bitterness. When you're focusing on your rights, you, you're going to have to stay bitter. You can't let your guard down in court. You can't be reconcilable. You have to be adversarial to win a case in court. If you, if you go to the, uh, take your case to Ozaki County here, they're going to make sure that you have left your weapons at home to get in, but you probably had to leave your forgiveness at home too to have any chance in court. So there's kind of this slippery slope from what is justice to actually what is revenge. So if this is your Christian brother and it's not a criminal case in which the government needs to take over, you've already lost something really valuable personally and spiritually. So plaintiffs beware, Paul says. Don't do it. In fact, he says, why not rather be wronged, which is unjustly treated, cheated, which means financially wronged by deceit. Seriously, Paul? Are you saying that Sometimes we should just take the loss. The world would say you're crazy. You know, if the world tells us we're crazy, could that actually be kind of a little bit of a, of a signal that maybe it's God's will? Because the world is always telling us that what the Bible says is crazy. We believe God created the world in six days. He's all-powerful. We believe he's completely in control. We believe he provided salvation just one way through the cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. We, we believe in, in biblical morality of a husband and a wife. And so the world calls that crazy. So usually Christians, we, as Christians, we, we agree with God's word on some of those things, but if it comes to injustice and our money, we kind of default to the flesh and think it's okay. Why not rather be wronged? Why not be cheated? Why? Well, it would be an incredible display of grace for another believer and trust in God. That, that would be amazing. But if it is a sin that cannot be ignored because of the seriousness and, and, and you've approached them, you've, you've talked to the godly people, you've taken it, the way Jesus described. You, you, you take not the world's way, but you take Christ's way. Then does not suing mean the person who wronged you wins? Not if we begin to see things through God's eyes. Uh, that's, the other person is one, if they've sinned against you, they've actually lost the most because now they have to live with the ongoing guilt where the Holy Spirit is at work because he is a brother in Christ. And if you go to court instead and win as a Christian plaintiff, you would actually lose the opportunity. Here's where the defeat comes in. <clears throat> you would lose the opportunity to exercise that often neglected muscle of forgiveness, Christ-like forgiveness, 
of uh, entrusting God with Christ-like endurance, of uh, not learning to let go of bitterness. All, you know, so, so you can win thousands of shekels, Paul says, but you've, you've sacrificed the priceless spiritual value of, of forgiveness and learning uh, these uh, endurance and trust, uh, priceless spiritual victories. And so the Corinthians, evidently, some of them had chosen shekels in the, in the false pursuit of making life fair. Futile pursuit, completely. It'll never happen. Your parents taught you that, right? Life isn't fair. Turns out it's true. So verse 8, what about the person who did the wrong Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. So he's not defending the, the sinner. Uh, you, do, you, you mean you did this and you didn't go to your brother and apologize? You didn't try to make things right? In fact, you, you welcomed the court situation because then you could you know, tell your story, craft it the way you want to, so you could win at court, and instead of doing what's truly right, seriously, you're going to cheat and wrong your brother? So that's why this whole courtroom concept is, between believers is, is a loss uh, on both sides. Well, verses 9 and 10 and 11, I believe, create kind of a transition to the next section because it's, it's kind of capturing the heart of the whole lawsuit thing as well as introducing the whole issue of, of, of sexual immorality. But the point in verses 9, 10, 11, I'm just going to read it today. We're going to take a little more time with it next week. But um, the point is, God saved us so that we would live holy or differently than the world, whether it's with greed or immorality. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he says, think about who you are, who they are. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, <clears throat> immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Talking to believers, you came from that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. He's, he's saying... Do you realize how different you are now and you're going to go to them with your cases? You're going to imitate the world when in fact you are washed and sanctified and justified by the cross of Jesus Christ and by the, the, work, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The church is the loser when that happens. Whether it's looking back at the court or forward at the issues of sexual immorality. Because Christians are not the same as non-Christians. But when we follow our flesh, we are amazingly similar to the world. We had a new kitchen stove delivered two weeks ago. The truck was probably only a couple blocks away when we noticed a very clear defect on the stove. So we called Home Depot and they sent out a replacement. It arrived this past week. We had them unbox it before they brought it in. It had exactly the same defect. Sent it back. Um, I hope I handled the telephone conversations well. There have been times I haven't. But uh, by the way, kudos to Home Depot, their, their, their customer service, considering what the, the product is like. It was act, the customer service was really good. 
It makes you ask the question, though, when you get irritated. Do I handle injustice well? Our first impulse when the guy cuts us off on the freeway is to honk, yell from inside our soundproof little room there. And give them a dirty look, hope they look at us, right? Because you cannot let this guy get 10 yards in front of you and you had to put on the brake to, to keep yourself safe with doing nothing. So you give him the horn and the dirty look at least. And let's say that that's when, as it cuts in front of you, you notice the little white open door sticker on the back window. Let's just say. This didn't really happen, by the way, okay? But let's just say. And you go, oh, he's from my ABF. <laughs> Maybe he was being a jerk. Um, Maybe he was late for work because the babysitter canceled and he's in threat of losing his job. And We just really don't know, do we? How do we react when wrong? And will we develop a heart more like Christ who suffered unjustly? Will we, will we make that a practice? Because there's no better place to practice that, that slice of holiness than with the injustices we experience even in the church family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we live in an unjust world and are ourselves uh, well aware of our sinfulness, that we would focus on the cross and the, the grace that flows down to us every day. And that we would find ourselves imitating you more and the world less when it comes to injustices and when there is something serious that we would not just go to the world's methods but rather to yours uh, to seek solutions and, and uh, uh, pray then Lord that, that your Holy Spirit would shine forth and that your church would show its distinctiveness and that we would reflect your holiness your, the unity we have in you because of the way we handle even some of our most difficult frustrating relational situations. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.